0: All right, Gut Check fans and COVID Files listeners, this is the Gut Check Project. And what we have here for episode number three is pretty interesting. We kind of flipped the script a little bit, but what we don't have that's different is three tried and true sponsors. Number one is going to be Unrefined Bakery. You can get products delivered to your house, keep your social distance, and stay safe. UnrefinedBakery.com. Use code Gut Check and save 20% off of incredible foods that taste great. They're gluten-free. They are keto friendly. Dr. Brown and myself both have had their trail mix, which is freaking unbelievable. Dr. Brown, anything to add to that?
1: Oh no, delicious. We were eating it on the show that day. That was it was like it's it's like crack. It's, it's
0: <laughs> UnrefinedBakery.com code GutCheck. Save 20% off your very first order delivered to your door. Also brought to you by Atron Teal, developed by my partner here, Dr. Ken Brown, full of polyphenols. Couldn't be more topical for what we're going to discuss today and kind of what we've been discussing all throughout this uh, pandemic, but Atron Teal, you can find your own at kbmdhealth.com. Also at lovemytummy.com forward slash kbmd. That's lovemytummy.com forward slash kbmd. Dr. Brown, anything to add to that? I
1: just have one thing to add to that, and that is listen to the other episodes and realize that polyphenols are Mother Nature's secret weapon.
0: Mother Nature's secret weapon can be found in Atron Teal. That's lovemytummy.com forward slash KBMD. Last but not least, this show brought to you by and staffed by the people from KBMD Health. That is kbmdhealth.com where you can find your very own physician vetted and clinically used CBD products as well as your own Atron and Dr. Brown's signature package. Now Dr. Brown why would that matter right now? Well as it turns
1: out the beauty is we've been preparing for times like this for quite a while because what the science that we've been looking at is that Atron actually allows you to make more of your own endocannabinoids. In other words The two together work synergistically. They help each other. That's why it's called the Signature Package.
0: Go ahead. Check out the Signature Package on your own. You can save 20% off of anything that you find at KBMDHealth.com by using code GCP. And actually, this week, you're listening to us as we record on April the 3rd, but by April the 6th or 7th we will now be featuring an incredible product that is not made by us called Broccoli. And we can touch more on that here in the future.
1: Yes. So, so I would say that the combination of all these things that we just talked about really should be the one sponsor of our show. The grandfather sponsor should be Hope. 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 Because we're going to allow people to get through this. And then the other side, and I'm going to give a shout out to episode 2.5 my partner dr ackerman because as a business we're talking i am very proud that my office has not furloughed anybody and he said the coolest thing in this meeting how are we going to be perceived on the other side we're going to get through this but we've got employees that need their single moms they have babies so my hope sponsor is actually dr Stuart ackerman check out episode 2.5 because what he said really hit me how are we going to be looked at on the other side 100 when we're done with this crisis this pandemic covid19
0: absolutely so sit tight be sure check in with our sponsors they're the ones who support the program but most of all please like and share the program certainly appreciate it we are off to, uh, to start now, COVID Files installment number three. All right, Gut Check fans and everybody at KBND Health, thank you all for joining us again for a third installment of the COVID File Dr. Brown and I are here to talk a little bit about the physiology and kind of how people actually get sick. And uh, Dr. Brown actually asked me to do a little role reversal. So uh, Ken, you want to explain a little bit what's going on here?
1: Yeah, so this is COVID Files number three. And we got a lot of feedback when Dr. Ackerman and I did 2.5, where all we did is talk about the gastrointestinal stuff. Then everybody else is in the news is talking about respiration pulmonary stuff and so we got a lot of questions about that and i just happened to see that like uh, a world-renowned infectious disease doctor dr peter hotez was on joe rogan and joe was asking all these lung questions in detail so i realized that you know you're an expert in this your training as a crna this is right in your wheelhouse so i thought that we could just do some of that even on some of these other shows, they're interviewing virologists, and they're interviewing epidemiologists, and they go really, really into the science. What we know that calm is contagious, and we know that the more information you have, that can actually calm you down, and that's what we're trying to do in this show. We're trying to get people through this crisis, but I do believe that if you understand the physiology, then it makes sense why some people can get really sick, and it makes sense why uh, some people get better. And so you being an expert in this is just perfect. And we're getting questions like this, like uh, from a Mike Logs in from Texas. Interesting. And we have one of those working for us also. Yeah, way. I know. He,
0: names like that just keep popping up. There's, just keep there's rolling Mike in. Logs in one, Mike Logs in two. I wonder if there's a Mike Logs in three.
1: I know. So Mr. Michael Loggson asks, what are your thoughts on why younger people and healthcare workers are getting hit hard as this disease goes on? That's a great question. And in fact, very relevant. Newsweek just did an online publication that I received this morning where it said that you know over a hundred healthcare workers have died from COVID 19. Yeah. So this is this is an important question. So really what we're gonna do with you today is talk about the pulmonary physiology and what happens in when people say, oh, this can affect you and you get this rapid uh, progression that can be very frightening and different things like that. But just understanding what's going on, I think, is the real important thing. So
0: no, I, I, agree. Uh,
1: I just want you to take it away. I'll interrupt, um, hopefully not too much, because I have a tendency to do that. And if I am, just go, wait, I got a slide on that. We'll get to that. So,
0: so a, cou- a couple of quick apologies that we learned uh, in technology since we are all practicing social distancing and Dr. Brown or Ken is is addressing his patients over in uh, the Plano area. I'm trying to help out over here in the uh, in the Denton area. We actually are not together, obviously, it's why we're recording like this. So I had to make some really bad drawing slides. Ken, you're gonna love these. They are they are really, really artistic. And um, as I share them, it's gonna pull our faces down from the screen. So bear with us, it's not normal, but we'll try to take some breaks in there. Uh, we've learned that we can't put them all up at the same time, at least we're not smart enough to do that. And, Ken, if I go too deep, if you feel like that I'm losing folks, just pull me back. Uh, hang with us though. The goal here is to show you how the disease itself is probably going to affect your lungs and then to get to a point of showing you how we think we can work through it. I'm gonna show you the tough parts, but at the same time, what it is that we're hoping to do to really get people through it. So, if that sounds and, good. Ed Really, even if this is not relevant to you, I,
1: I do know where we're gonna go with this and right now, The mayor of New York City is thinking about bringing in a doctor draft where basically they're gonna pull doctors out of retirement. They're gonna ask doctors in different specialties to try and help out with these pulmonary issues. So you can even forward this to your doctor if you have family or friends that are in the healthcare field. This is something you could forward to them because if I happen to get called in, I wanna be informed on how to treat people with their pulmonary situation, not just their gastrointestinal. So this, this could also be very relevant for healthcare workers, our frontline people.
0: I agree, I agree. And I'm hoping that uh, we can uh, make, some, make some light of, not necessarily light, but bring some information to give some people some comfort. So uh, you'll see here, my very first drawing, uh, right off the bat did not load the way I wanted it to. So that's uh, a little bit of humor there. And that's about as good as these drawings are gonna get. So I'm sorry. These are lungs. That little green arrow is is pointing up to a diaphragm. Just a quick refresher. As a diaphragm contracts, it pulls down on the lungs, giving a negative pressure or pulling air in to the lungs. And that's important. When you're healthy, you're pulling air in. You're not necessarily having it pushed in. But what you do need to recognize is that the lungs are made up of five different lobes. The left lobe has two, the right lobe has three, and every single one of those uh, lobes has tons, literally over 300 million alveoli per lung. So you, a 70 kilogram average adult, has around 600 million alveoli and that gives you tremendous surface area for oxygen and uh, CO2 exchange. That's what keeps us alive and that's what uh, the oxygen keeps us alive and the CO2 of course is our waste gas that our body is pushing out And if you were to spread it out flat, that equals to roughly a little bit larger than a tennis
1: court. So Ken. Wow. Yeah. And so the analogy I always thought about this is a tree. The main bronchus is the trunk. Then you get split and then it keeps going into smaller branches where the leaves could kind of represent the gas exchange or the alveoli. Do you visualize it like that?
0: Yeah, tree is exactly what they call it. It's the tracheobronchial tree, and it runs all the way out. There's actually, I believe, 23 generations of tubes getting smaller and smaller and smaller until we get out to the alveolus itself. So, alveoli is all of them. Alveolus is a singular one. Don't hold me to it. I often interchange them myself while talking about them. So, one particular alveolus, I've just drawn an arrow. It's in the lungs, it's everywhere, but I'm making an arrow and a draw here because this is what we're really gonna get started with on how it all functions. Oh, I'm sorry, And here's the heart. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later in positioning, but know that the heart lies anterior or towards the front of your body a little bit and then a little bit over to the left. So, um, but that's where the heart is located as it receives blood, pushes it to the lungs, receives the blood again, and then pushes it out to your body. So <clears throat> let's look at that alveolus. The alveolus right here, you'll see inside the circle, That's actually the external air that we've just breathed in. So that's where our fresh air, oxygen, oxygen oxygen-rich air, will come to. And it will be taken up by the capillary. The capillary is the blood supply that's bringing up the gas that needs to pick up oxygen and let go of excessive CO2, carbon dioxide. That's the waste gas. So that's
1: that's the exchange. The oxygen goes in, carbon dioxide goes into the little alveoli, then we breathe that out.
0: That's exactly right. And you'll notice I have even though my drawings are poor, you'll notice, you'll see the capillary here in a moment. It's going to start to kind of pull away in distance. And that just makes it harder for that gas exchange. Inside the alveolus, there are two specific uh, cells that we have in there. pneumocytes. so means cells. Pneumocyte one are for gas exchange. Pneumocyte two are there for surfactant. They make surfactant. Now, granted, the there are more pneumocyte twos than there are pneumocyte ones but the pneumocyte ones actually take up far more real estate for gas exchange but the pneumocyte twos make that very important surfactant which allows the alveoli to expand without collapsing and that becomes a problem for us as we as we move along what we've returned to here in this particular drawing i've only drawn a pneumocyte two because that's where the infection occurs with the current virus that we're addressing, the coronavirus. We'll
1: just say, remember a lot of people were talking about the ACE2 receptor. This is what they're talking about on the news. These, these type two pneumocytes have a lot of these ACE2 receptors. So that's the target.
0: That's correct. I didn't draw that on there, but that's, that's a, a, a definite point. ACE2 receptors are located right there on that type two pneumocyte. That little blue dot at the top is going to represent a coronavirus and it's going to attach to this type two pneumocyte. So next what happens, we're just going to be reminded here that surfactant is important. It breaks the surface tension. Without it, the alveolus will collapse. Very important, and I'm going to remind you a few times about that. So now the little blue dots inside of the type two pneumocyte represent the uh, replication, or basically the, uh, the increasing number of viruses that have just now been transcripted. They're, they're uh, multiplying, and now it's infected the cell
1: so just to go back to our very first COVID episode the virus gets into the cell hijacks it gets the cell to produce more of the virus that's why they're uh growing inside the cell itself
0: they definitely are and then this is not what the cell is programmed to do so unfortunately the cell is going to rupture and die and the virus is going to escape to the alveolus now i'm going to stop real quick and remind everyone remember i said that there are type 2 pneumocytes actually outnumber the type 1 So the problem is it's not that just that one type 2 pneumocyte in this particular alveolus is is, uh, infected. Probably most, if not all of them in this alveolus are infected. And so this is happening all over this alveolus. Well, not only is new virus going to escape, but these little red dots I just added in there represent inflammatory mediators, and they carry a message. They are searching for help. And not only that, we now have a ruptured and dying and dead cell. So, you'll notice I've drawn an M here, Ken. What would be inside an alveolus like this? What are these things called? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, I believe you're going to talk about macrophages now.
0: Yep, macrophages, exactly. They are the janitors of the immune system, and he's there to just generally clean up regular debris and cellular debris and then take it in, and then basically it usually just gets ushered out or absorbed by lymph, et cetera. What we have now is a crisis situation because it's not just happening at this type to pneumocyte, it's happening probably to most of them. They all begin to be picked up, these inflammatory mediators are picked up by the macrophage itself, and that's going to activate it. It now knows it needs to release some messengers of its own to call for help. And right here is the beginning of something they've been talking a lot about in the news, especially for young people and that's the cytokine storm. Because these, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, and tumor necrotic factor alpha are all um, cytokines, and they are going to be released and picked up by the blood supply, the capillary right down here. And they are going to have some immediate local action. And as this is happening, remember I said there are up to 600 million alveoli throughout uh, throughout your lungs is this begins to happen in a section. Imagine all of the interleukin 1, 6, and ten alpha that will be picked up by the blood supply and now begin to spread throughout the body. So you can see now they've made their way into the capillary bed, and a few things are gonna happen right off the bat. <clears throat> Once they first get into the capillary bed, the capillary itself is going to dilate. That's going to lower the blood pressure, but it's going to increase the blood flow. Now this happens with injury all over the body. We, we have an injury, you have swelling, it's very, very normal because you're bringing in other things to help repair. But when this happens over and over again, kind of in an uncontrollable situation like we're going to talk about, that's why we know that we need to manage this particular situation. Um, the permeability of the capillary itself is going to increase. That's going to allow for some fluid to escape the capillary bed and then begin to infiltrate the alveolus itself so fluid also known as blood plasma escapes to the interstitial space which is the space between the capillary and tissues and then also goes into the alveolus so Uh, the
1: permeability or now we've got a leaky um capillary bed right permeability (laughs) is Ne- not necessarily something that is in response to it. It is because the capillary vasodilation is stretching it too much, or are you aware of how the, the leaky capillary happens?
0: Uh, in, a, in a really uh, microbiology term, I think what happens is that those cytokine, if I'm recalling correctly, those cytokine mediators activate the endothelial cells, which are the cells inside of the capillary. It actually causes them individually to constrict which makes holes. So if you could think of two large men and suddenly they become skinny men without moving their feet, there's now space between them. Does that make sense? Yes. That's kind of that's, that's kind of how I remembered anyway. Um, but that allows the blood plasma, which is normally contained within the capillary bed, to then escape, go into the interstitial space, migrates into the alveolus, and this is not what we want. I'm going to reiterate that surfactant is important. It breaks the surface tension of liquid. Without it, the alveolus will collapse. Well, we just had those type 2 pneumocytes that were producing surfactant, but now they are beginning to be damaged and not produce surfactant at all. And when they were producing it, they were producing the correct ratio, which meant that for the fluid that was there, remember, when we breathe in, it's 100% humidity in the alveoli. Once we don't have surfactant, now we don't have enough uh, in a ratio to help keep it open. So losing cells that produce surfactant, and then we dilute the existing surfactant that is going to increase our surface tension and the potential of collapse of the alveolus is inevitable. So
1: the surfactant, the way that I've always kind of thought about it, when you don't have surfactant, the alveolus, they, they will stick to each other, they cannot slide and open up, and so it becomes a very in the dumbed-down terms, like a, like a stuck balloon that's that can't expand.
0: That's correct. Now, I've written uh, consolidation up here. It may be a little premature at this point, but uh, we will return to it. This is the method of how consolidation um, uh, occurs. And like I said, I forgive me for my drawings, I just uh, did these and snapped them and loaded them in the computer. Because <laughs> I, I, I knew I couldn't draw and talk at the same time very well. But um, <clears throat> regardless, you'll see that fluid's beginning to build up Little red dots in there represent cellular debris. Also, some viruses still trapped in there. Um, some proteins which have broken are, are still stuck in there. But remember, I, I warned you earlier the capillary bed is beginning to pull away, right? The interstitial space is also continuing to fill up along with the alveolus. That pressure outside the alveolus and then the water on the inside or the fluid on the inside will basically make this alveolus. You have the potential to collapse. It will not expand nor contract with each breath. It basically just kind of floats as a membrane would between two liquids. Um, I've also drawn oxygen up here at the top and CO2 still in the capillary bed. The sheer distance for the diffusion is going to render this alveolus incapable of gas exchange. That's that's a so what view. So in this
1: picture, just to clarify, the oxygen that you breathe in hits this fluid because the, the alveoli is filling up. And it's not getting to the other side where it needs to go.
0: That's correct. It cannot, it uh, just really won't diffuse that even though microscopically may look like a short distance, it's uh, it's still far too uh, far for efficient gas exchange for oxygen and CO2. So remember, this is what it should look like. Where the oxygen would come in mm-hmm. be right next to uh, the alveolus, uh, to the capillary, CO2 goes, uh, goes out, O2 comes in, no big deal. That's just not what's happening right now. the the next step that happens and takes us to full consolidation is going to be the summoning of these neutrophils. Another part of our immune system, they normally would come in and in a healthy alveolus would more or less be able to target viruses and and other pathogens that could be found within the lung. But in this particular situation, especially with the amount of fluid that's taken on, they actually become a little bit indiscriminate. And they use Uh, Two agents primarily, the reactive oxygenation species and uh, various proteases, and instead of a targeted attack with the dilution here inside the alveolus, it actually just becomes kind of a wide wide array spray of attack. And not only do they grab a hold of some of the proteins that don't belong there and some of the cellular debris that needs to go, they'll also end up attacking indiscriminately against healthy lung tissue healthy pneumocyte ones and pneumocyte two.
1: So when people talk about a bacterial pneumonia, this is the beginning of having a super infection in addition to the damage that the virus has already caused.
0: It is, it is. And, and again, uh, Brown and I are not telling you any of this stuff so that you become panicked, but really it's the opposite. Knowing what's happening may help you understand, number one, what it is that your healthcare provider needs to do to keep you and your family safe if you happen to find yourself in the situation. And number two, I think here in a moment, after we wrap up some of this uh, this discussion, you'll see maybe some things you could do at home to outrun some of this.
1: Yeah. So what we're doing, what you're doing, uh, is you're setting the stage work that you, if you understand the physiology and then the pathophysiology, then you can start doing some modifications to try and improve. And that's where we're headed here.
0: Definitely. And again, this is called consolidation. And at this point, this just basically establishes a word that says that this side has been consolidated, it's not functioning, air will not be exchanged here, we will not have oxygen pickup nor CO2 uh, blown out by this alveolus. And Now you kind of have to picture not just this alveolus but the entire portion of the affected lung is now uh, experiencing a portion of consolidation. So let's talk about what's happened so far. We've lost Uh, Type 1 and type 2 pneumocytes, 1 is how we breathe or the the gas exchange, 2 makes the surfactant to keep the alveoli open. Our gas exchange, of course, is going down. Our surface area, our tennis court size of surface area for us to pick up oxygen is being decreased. And our diffusion distance at the alveolar level is increasing, even for those that haven't been consolidated, right? So we have a decrease in gas exchange. You'll see this little abbreviation I debated on whether or not to put it up there, the old PAO2. That simply just represents the pressure of oxygen in the artery. Big P means pressure, little a means artery, O2. So that's just a, a, a cool shorthand that medical workers use to identify the partial pressure of the oxygen in a particular location. Inevitably, it just means that we have low uh, oxygen and that gives us a word called hypoxemia
1: low, low oxygen.
0: oxygen yeah low oxygen
1: can you just on that note right there because we use pulse oximeters all the time oh, yeah. and even get them at walgreens can you explain the difference between the number on the pulse oximeter and the pao2 yeah, that's,
0: a, that's a that's a great thing um so on a pulse oximeter that really is only reading the percentage of the red blood cells that are fully saturated. So there are actually four binding sites on a normal red blood cell for an oxygen molecule to bind onto an iron molecule. If all four of the sites are occupied before the red blood cell has delivered it to a tissue, and uh, it will be counted as one that's saturated. So if you have 98% saturation, that means 98% of your red blood cells have all four sites occupied before they uh, deposit one. This is a little bit different. This is actually the carrying capacity of, of the, uh, of the red blood cells and how much of the oxygen is actually present to make a difference. So SpO2 talks about how well the red blood cells are actually picking up the oxygen to take it somewhere. But let's talk a little bit about this. Ken, you said that your son went to play in, um, and I believe it was in Mexico. Yeah, it was, was Mexico. It was a very
1: high day. altitude. He was there for four weeks, I think. Yeah, yeah. Very high altitude. So essentially, it was high altitude training. We can use that several as tournaments.
0: kind of an example. When he was up there, do you think for one second that his oxygen saturation was ever at risk? Probably not.
1: No. Yeah. He
0: was saturating them just fine. But what he didn't have was a high enough oxygen pressure. So his body sensed that sensed the decrease in uh, in oxygen pressure and began to produce more mature red blood cells to become more of the bus carriers to pick up more oxygen and take it out. So he probably remained at 99% saturation the entire time, but he actually just needed more oxygen molecules themselves to sustain it because there's just less atmospheric pressure at 7,000 feet.
1: Yeah. And that's what we had to come to that conclusion because when he came back, we uh, he got a workup by his pediatrician and we were all a little bit alarmed to see that his hemoglobin and hematocrit had jumped way up and it was in response to being in high altitude. So it was the body's adaptation to it
0: well that's that's I completely agree with that um and that and that's actually guys that's actually a normal thing to have happen when you when you have a higher uh, red blood cell count at a higher altitude
1: so but, now you're going to talk about the thing that's that's the hard part, which is the work of breathing goes up
0: the definite definitely work of breathing goes up fighting this uh, tougher distance of diffusion, losing a portion of your uh, lung capacity to move gas is going to increase the work of breathing and then Throughout this theme, can, you're going to see the word work pop up because it works in, in the complete opposite direction of what's happening in the lungs for someone to more or less recover on their own. So cough is going to set in. If it hasn't already, that's going to increase the work of breathing. And don't forget, these viruses are pretty smart. That's actually going to help spread the virus. So that's, uh, that's no good either. Work by the body requires more oxygen. Again, that's why I'm going to highlight that and just kind of think about that for a moment. If I'm decreasing my availability to get oxygen, but the work and the demand is going up, I've got an intersection of a problem here. And uh, if if not recognized soon enough, it could just get worse. So let's talk about why uh, why hurting your lung and recovering from an injury is probably more important than just hurting your ankle. Now, this is Mike Logsons number three. This is his ankle.
1: Yeah, he sent us a picture. He said, you can use my ankle as an example, thank you. Yes,
0: so Mike number three, thank you for sending in this photo. And uh, Mike is into jujitsu, and he showed me after one of his injuries that uh, he, t- he had his ankle twisted, and uh, he said, ouch. But the good thing about hurting your ankle Okay, you do get edema. Just like what we're having up here, the, the fluid buildup in the lungs, you can get edema and have a swollen ankle. But the good thing is, I don't have to breathe through my ankle. There is no mouth. There. I'm not going to have to, to draw in air at my ankle. So I can just lay up and rest. The problem with having edema or fluid buildup in the lungs is we're compromising our ability to simply recover. And so that's why it's such an urgent situation. And uh, I, didn't, I don't think we mentioned this uh, before we moved on here, Ken, what we're describing here is a ac- acute respiratory dis- distress syndrome. And uh, so that's ARDS. You may hear people in the news reference acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. This is kind of more or less getting to the point where we're spiraling a little out of control as far as the lungs are specifically. So let's look systemically or all over the body. Remember interleukin one and interleukin six. Well,
1: we those, were the, those were the, infl- the initial inflammatory mediators set off when the virus attacked the type 2 pneumocyte. Then the response of that is to release these inflammatory mediators.
0: That's correct. And uh, they were picked up by the capillary beds. And now remember, they're not just working locally. If we have a large portion of the lungs releasing these same mediators, they're going to eventually make their way to the central nervous system or the brain and spinal cord. They're going to trigger the hypothalamus, which will then release prostaglandins. That raises your body temperature. And guess what? That's what we end up uh, turning into a fever. And unfortunately, fever is just going to be more work. It requires more metabolic work for your body. So we are still yet increasing the demand for oxygen. We, as we referenced earlier, PaO2, remember, it's just a, a simple shorthand for the pressure of oxygen or the number of oxygen molecules in the artery. It's low. So this is hypoxemia. Now, the trigger that Lucas had whenever he ended up producing red blood cells was they, his chemoreceptors noticed that they were a little bit low on uh, oxygen carriers, so they produced more red blood cells. The chemoceptors here are going to try that, but in the interim, they're also going to trigger The sympathetic nervous system. And when they do that, that's going to set off anxiety, getting people a little bit worked up, but it's also going to be, don't forget, the sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response. It's going to increase your heart rate. It's going to increase your respiratory rate. That is just more work. The demand for this oxygen just keeps going up. And all of
1: that, just on that last slide there, Eric, remember that the heart rate is that, that's compensatory because it says we're not getting enough oxygen, so if I pump faster, okay. we'll at least get more oxygen around. If I breathe in quicker, I'm hoping to bring in more oxygen and the heart tries to pump it fast and that just becomes a bit of a slippery slope. And that's where you're gonna get into right now.
0: You're right, and think, think of healthy lung at this point. If, if we would simply just had healthy lung at just this point and these were the triggers, That high heart rate and that high respiratory rate would basically put everything at ease because hypoxemia would be solved. That's not what we're dealing with at the moment. Um, So this is obviously a progressive disease. We have those increase in cytokines, interleukin-1, 6, uh, TNF-alpha. You can have what they call SIRS for short or systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Then this is kind of interchangeably been used with cytokine storm but essentially this is what's happening these cytokines are triggering all levels and manners of uh, of uh, problems throughout the body and what we have because of the dilation everywhere is we have a decrease in peripheral vascular resistance that's just the resistance that we have at the edges of our of our body right we have an increase in permeable capillaries. Now, Dr. Brown described it earlier, it just means that they've become more porous. That's where we're leaking that blood plasma, the fluid. Well, when we leak that fluid, that decreases our blood volume. And we have this systemic all over the body vasodilation. So all of the vessels have lost this resistance. And it's because all of the vessels are trying to get more of the blood flow. But basically, we're running out of that amount of blood.
1: When I did um, critical care medicine: the way to think of that when the body's when the body's trying to compensate by trying to get more blood to everything. If you open up the arteries or if they vasodilate, and you can keep up with it, then you get more blood flow where it needs to go. But if you can't keep up with it, imagine a hose. You know the a hose that has a little nozzle on it. Oh yeah. You can run water, and the the smaller the hose, the higher the pressure it goes through. Right. And if you keep putting on bigger hoses, then it just comes out as like a little trickle. And that's what's going on. And that's what creates this hypotension or severely low blood pressure.
0: No, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent uh, visual. Yeah, it's uh, you got high pressure with a garden hose, same amount of water through a fire hose, not so much pressure.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So just like uh, Dr. Brown just described, we now are hypotensive. We don't have that pressure everywhere. So now we're systemically hypotensive. Well, that comes with its own consequences it's going to re-trigger the SNS as if we didn't need more agitation but SNS sympathetic nervous system fight-or-flight thank you you for batting clean up there uh sympathetic nervous system there uh poor perfusion of organs this is where things begin to really kind of spiral out of control if we didn't get there soon enough okay so we we have the lungs that's that's a set of organs right but we've got brain heart liver kidney also very, very important. If we have poor perfusion, we risk getting multi-system organ failure, or MSOF. So kidneys, liver, and heart. Here's, a, here's a, the reason why I'm highlighting these is these are the ones, and almost in this order, which will begin to throw off uh, markers that we can, we can sample for with laboratory, uh, with the laboratory work and see the status of, of, uh, of a patient. As kidneys begin to lose perfusion, they will increase our blood, our blood uh, uh, our blood urea nitrogen will begin to increase as well as the creatinine. And it's simply because the pressure is not great enough for it to be cleared by the kidneys. And the problem is, is those are toxic at high levels. We don't, we don't need those circulating like that. The liver itself will begin to sustain some acute damage because it's not being perfused and, and the, the wastes aren't being carried away. So we have an increase in AST, an increase in ALT, an increase in bilirubin. We also may end up detecting later as we progress an increase in, in C reactive protein. More interleukin 6, just in case we didn't have enough of that circulating brown, your, your liver guy here is going to, to throw out some interleukin 6, as well as possibly some fibrinogen. And then, if we get to this point and the heart begins to not be able to perfuse the myocardium or the heart muscle, the heart could begin to throw off some troponin or CKMB markers very similar to what we would test for for somebody who's had a heart attack or they may also uh, unfortunately be at the point where they could suffer uh,
1: looking at this looking at multi-system organ failure when I was a resident or when I was a medical student you'd show up and you have to do rounds and so you'd have your patient the attending would show up you'd go 24 uh, hours what's gone on in the last 24 hours you tell them you're like okay well we've got uh, blood pressure has consistently been dropping. We either try and keep it up or we keep an eye on it. BUN has gone up, creatinine's gone up. We've got a slight bump in the liver test. So far, troponin is normal. And that's almost how you would say it because you're like, we're heading there. We have to stop it before. Because once that heart, once you start having the heart attack, that's your last, that's, that's the thing that's going to really give up. So. No,
0: no it, there, there's, there's uh, and, and, and let, let's reiterate, before we get to this point, this is why we want you to know what's happening. We don't want to get to this point.
1: Yes. We're, we're so going to
0: reiterate this, this is what we want to steer away from.
1: This is why, whenever they talk about the healthcare resources, why it's so important. Because oh. one thing that I want to get out there right now, because we're learning data about COVID 19, and now it looks like we're getting close to 30%. I've seen some studies when you're looking at the data of young people getting it, not dying, but needing hospital facilities to stop them from going into multi-organ failure so it is no longer just very old and sick people they just have they already walk in before all this starts happening with some other underlying problem we believe that's why they go into multi-organ failure quickly so this is relevant for everybody that this is why we need to make sure that we continue to practice social distancing so that we do not overwhelm the healthcare system
0: One hundred percent. That's that's what we're trying to work against uh, for certain. Um, So let's look at this patient right quick. We've had a decrease in oxygen. Remember, our lungs are damaged and I've kind of just made a summation of the workload. These are the demands. We've increased the work on the work of breathing, the fever, the heart rate, the respiratory rate, the anxiety, not to mention the organs are starved for it. We've got hypotension everywhere. We're, We're in a little bit of trouble here. So come in whenever, uh, certainly when it's appropriate and you have the, the right uh, signs and symptoms, which we've addressed in, in uh, the COVID files one and two and, and, and two and a half. But what will happen if you end up getting managed in this particular situation? First, they're going to try to, to, try to find out how much fluids they can give you to resuscitate some of that blood volume. And it's not just as easy as just giving you what's missing because remember, we have permeable capillaries Giving too much of fluids, this is a delicate balancing act, giving too much of the fluids could actually exacerbate or make the problem worse with some of the interstitial fluid volumes. So we'll be using some medicines as well, some medicines that will help what we call pressors to bring your pressure up, some diuretics to help pull off some of the excessive fluid. So there, there's there's a, a significant balance there. but.
1: It just shows why people like you get subspecialty training and ICU doctors and pulmonologists that anybody that works in a critical care unit, that's why it's so important. They're they're really good at this and there's an art to it and it requires definite increased learning, not just... This is what's a little bit scary if they ask a gastroenterologist like me to come in and say, hey, look, we're losing people. We need your help in the ICU. One of the reasons why we're doing this is because as a healthcare worker, I feel like I need to refresh myself on things that I've not done in a long time.
0: That's a really good point because a lot of what you do is a long-term solution as you take care of the patient. And a lot of what I do, both in anesthesia and then whenever we were doing uh, critical care is it's, it's very acute. It's very short term. Most of the medicines we use are, I mean, they're, they're instant, they're in and they're gone. Right. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's very much like that so what happens after this if fluids and medicines aren't going to do it, well we need to ventilate which is how we breathe duh but if you can't do it on your own we're going to look at mechanical ventilation and that essentially means that we're going to have to insert an endotracheal tube to control the airway now uh can at a later time or if we have enough time today we can talk about some of the alternatives between just breathing room air to this but for this particular Episode. Not to get too far, let's just go straight to uh, ventilation, if that's okay.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Because that's that—that's what everybody's been hearing on the news. Also, is just we're going to run out of ventilators.
0: Well, yeah, and very, very good point. So, some of the other uh, stop gaps in between the CPAP, the BiPAP, and, and high flow, and the tents over the head—those are all great if they work. I mean, goodness gracious, high flow nasal cannulas, absolutely. But there's there's uh, peculiarities with each one of them. The critical part here is we just don't have enough ventilators if anybody gets pushed to this area. So we're going to have to connect that endotracheal tube to the ventilator. And you're going to love this drawing. I mean, anybody would obviously recognize this anywhere. that's, That's definitely a ventilator. Um, or a flux capacitor. I'm not really yeah, sure. I was going to say, it looks more like a
1: flux capacitor. than. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: the blue represents the endotracheal tube. It goes down through the uh, trachea there, but uh, I want to call your attention to one small thing. That little bitty red circle represents a balloon. We, after we put a tube into someone's trachea, we actually inflate this little balloon, and it secures the tube in place, and it gives a true closed circuit, meaning air is not breathed around it. We can now control the ventilation. And in this particular case, with such a contagious virus, we can prevent the spread of the virus from coming out of the lungs and through the mouth and nose because it's closed.
1: That was the that, that was the big argument in the very beginning. Is this just droplets or can this be aerosolized? And in the beginning, it felt that possibly if you don't have a closed circuit, then you're allowing somebody to aerosolize it in a room. And now we're putting healthcare workers in a room with higher amounts of virus and so the likelihood of getting infected without proper protective equipment i think that's why healthcare workers are our frontline people and they're putting themselves their heroes because people taking care of these patients especially in the beginning that's why so many chinese doctors died when they didn't realize what they were dealing with
0: yeah it's um it, it's a it's a pretty hairy topic all around and the, the intermediary steps to getting someone from you know being able to walk around to the vent, where, where do you stop, and is there enough, is there enough PPE for the others outside of this little bitty ballooned cuff to uh, to handle that? Um, some things that we're going to do with, and I don't want to get too deep here, uh, but some things that someone would do when they when they put somebody on a ventilator is they would have to look at small measurements. There's one called tidal volume. That's just the amount of air that you're breathing in and out with each breath. If the, if for instance, the average. 70 kilogram person takes in around 500 to 550 milliliters or ccs of air which with each breath and blows that out at rest
1: so the, that's just your normal breathing so everybody that's listening to this they're breathing normal that is your tidal volume that's what you normally do
0: correct and the amount of times that you breathe in a minute is just a respiration right at rest uh, relatively healthy uh, uh, people adults about 12 to 14 times a minute so you can see something here though, the, the bottom two minute volume and, and peep those are those are, are calculations and uh and uh, uh therapies that are specific to a ventilator and minute volume is simply the respiration rate times the tidal volume so if somebody breathes in and out uh 500 cc's and they do it 12 times a minute their minute volume would be 6 uh six liters. does that make sense it does and i think the the, the key here is the PEEP because
1: this now the physiology that you taught in the beginning pathophysiology this is where the peat becomes really interesting
0: yeah so let's i'm so glad you said that so everybody remember pete we're going to address it this is what the vent can do for us and um that we can't do with without it. okay uh so just uh just looking at what we would do with someone who happens to be sick and dealing with an ARDS situation, acute respiratory distress syndrome. We've lost some of the lung availability, so we can't put in the same volumes as normal, so we're gonna have to turn it down. But we want to maintain a relatively close minute volume, so we're going to increase the respiration rate to make that equation somewhat balance out. Now, that's just to get us started. Granted, we will uh, be able to check what we call arterial blood gases and make certain that we're doing it the right way and we can check our therapy, but at the same time, to get someone set up, these are some of the calculations that we would make. But what we're going to do is begin to apply PEEP, okay? And I'm going to break that down here in just a moment. Uh, But first, you may wonder why am I seeing people on TV or why do I see someone that I know who's being treated for ARDS or specifically COVID ARDS in this prone position? Prone means face down, spine to the sky, laying on their abdomen or stomach and getting Respiratory therapy. If you recall, I drew the heart earlier in uh, one of the earlier slides, and I showed that the heart is located a little anterior, so towards the front and a little bit over to the left. But essentially, when you lay on your back, that gravity is still pulling down on the heart. You're you're kind of occluding a good portion of the lungs that lay along the back part of your body. Does that make sense?
1: Ken? It does, and I think that this is something that. We, we need to get through because this may be early intervention and we're, we're seeing a little bit more of this and here's why.
0: Yeah. So it, that, that's exactly right. And, uh, something you can actually do at home. Even if you're, if you're not feeling great recruitment, I've written on here, increasing recruitment, recruitment just simply means I can make use of these alveoli, all those little alveoli everywhere else. If I can use them, I'm recruiting them to be a part of it. Right? So if the heart is more anterior, And I'm getting more exposure to more lung tissue that's still healthy. I'm increasing my recruitment. So we're going to have to monitor for status after we get onto a ventilator. Like I said before, we're going to look at arterial blood gases. These are just figures that we look at. I am going to show you the numbers, but you don't have to memorize them, of course. (laughs) You make Uh, it seem like it's a test. I know, I know, I know. I want everybody to write in, email. If you you can recall this, you can recall this slide. Normal pH, which is how we measure our our acidity or or base or alkalinity is 735 to 745. CO2 is 35 to 45, That's, that's what we breathe out. HCO3 is bicarbonate, okay? That's what our kidneys are doing to help give us balance. But remember, they're not being perfused, so they're not really making it like they need to. And our PaO2, we've referenced it several times, but that's the pressure of oxygen in the arteries. It's normally, for a healthy person, 80 to 100. Well, this is what it looks like when we run the first ABG. We're gonna be acidic, because we're not getting rid of waste gas, and we're not producing enough bicarb, okay? And so our oxygen is really what we're going to have to get control of first, and then we're gonna to work towards a better uh, acid-base balance as we uh, as we treat the
1: patient. So for non-healthcare workers, this is an arterial blood gas. This is a measure when somebody's in the ICU and these numbers tell a story depending on what's happening. They say if you're getting slightly better, slightly worse. And by the time, what's really cool is I'm looking at all of this, usually there's involvement of multiple specialties helping out, which is why one ICU person can occupy possibly a critical care doctor, possibly infectious disease, possibly a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, and they all look at these numbers and make decisions and tweaks on the patient. This is just shows how complex a patient in the ICU really
0: is. Uh, with, without question. Um, positive in expiratory pressure.
1: This is so our this, peep. Yeah, yeah,
0: this is peep. So we, we drew attention to it a few slides back, and if I had done a little bit better job of putting mm-hmm. them in the correct order, we would have hop straight to this. Mm-hmm. A healthy person when we bring them in to Uh, to the OR, and we end up having to use intubation or something like that. Super healthy, you may not have to give peep at all. Generally, people will end up having, uh, you know, two, three, and all the way up to five. A healthy person can have up to five centimeters of water of pressure. It just represents pressure, but just look at the five. And what that does is that holds open the alveolus after you've expired gas. Now, this is kind of important in that, When we breathe and you're healthy, remember at the very beginning I said your diaphragm pulls down. You're pulling air in. Your uh, chest wall is expanding out. It's literally pulling uh, an external force outward to create a negative pressure to pull air in. Well, that doesn't happen with a ventilator. We're having to force air in. So we use people, healthy people, just so that we can keep uh, recruitment up of healthy alveoli already. Well, remember, right now, we're not only fighting the fact that we're pushing air in, we're actually fighting the fact that we've got fluid trying to leak into our healthy alveoli. And if we lose an alveolus to consolidation, it's 99% chance that we are not going to re aerate or, or re-recruit that, uh, that alveolus. We end up just losing it. So somebody who is already in ours, we're going to start start at 10 to 12 centimeters of water of pressure for PEEP, and that's it's a healthy dose of peat it does a few things for us for certain it keeps the alveolus open it allows us not to give uh too long of a period of time of high flow oxygen which is 100 percent oxygen and that, that's a whole that's a whole nother issue but it really will allow us to save good good parts of the lung and i should say here ken there are Possibilities of applying PEEP where you're not necessarily intubated. Somebody with a CPAP or BIPAP mask on this solely secure, you can still experience PEEP in that in that particular situation. Or even I think some high flow nasal cannulas are credited with some some portions of PEEP. But it's so still-
1: yeah. So just the the whole PEEP thing was always confusing to me when I was studying it. But the way the way that you're describing it we know that when these alveoli start to go through that whole process that you talked about in the beginning Mm -hmm. capillaries start dilating well these it starts to put pressure on the alveoli and by the peep you can actually force that alveoli to try and maintain at least some gas exchange so that the leakiness and the, the fluid creeping in doesn't win it doesn't completely close off the alveoli
0: one hundred percent. It's this uh, the the peep is. Li- you're exactly right. The peep is literally there, not only to keep the alveolus open, but in this particular situation on an ARDS patient, we've increased it because we need that extra help to help keep that fluid at bay in the capillary bed. We're not. We've already lost a part of the lung right now during this disease state that we can't re-recruit while it has fluid in it and, and is going through its uh, consolidation phase. We need to maintain what we still have so i wrote right here increase area recruitment maybe it's a really 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 slight maybe we're doing that by by proning and turning down we're doing that by oh and Ken, you've seen these beds before there are beds that actually are are specific for ARDS patients where you lay them in prone but they actually turn them from side to side and move them around and that's literally to increase and maintain the area of recruitment
1: and those are very high-level, high-specialty beds, specifically only for this type of patient. And there's, if we are, we have few ventilators. We got even fewer of those real specialty beds.
0: <laughs> That's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah, uh, but we our main job here with Pete, our main job here with the ventilation is to preserve the area of recruitment, and of course, with the PEEP, like I mentioned earlier, we want to decrease the need for 100% O2. now Some people have even uh, have even asked why why would you want to do that um the uh here, here's the danger of in the fine line here working through mechanical ventilation and is that the uh yeah so too high a pressure so we want to be able to dial in and give someone enough of the air that they need to ventilate we've lost part of the lung so that's going to increase the pressure if we don't dial back the volumes etc etc just remember if we apply too much pressure, we can actually spread ARDS because we're causing damage to healthy tissue. If we give 100% oxygen for too, for too long, we can actually spread ARDS because it leaves reactive oxygenation species, which is exactly what the uh, neutrophils were using to destroy w- uh, what uh, remained of the virus and unfortunately healthy tissue.
1: I know this is not... <laughs> Uh, ventilators are not like the way I treat a microwave, which is just on high every time, and just turn it on and let it roll. Yeah. Ventilators—it's such a—it's such a nuanced art, and yeah. you know—and nobody's discussing that on the news. Where they're like, you know, we're going to run out of vents. Well, we also going to run out of people like you that know how to run these vents. Yeah. So, you know, and I—I I, this was not to scare anybody. This is not to get too sciencey. You and I talked about this. I feel that here on Gut Check Project COVID Files, we see that there are going to be some doctors. And when I was watching um, the Joe Rogan show, they were were talking about how doctors are stepping up. They're switching and trying to help out in this area. And I know that there are probably some doctors like me that are like, okay, I want to help out there's going to be, or if we get recruited to get in there, then I better do a refresher course. And all I have are a bunch of, you know, really old textbooks that'll take a long time to get through. This is just the beginning of something so that they can at least go talk to a family member maybe. Yeah. So that maybe other people will go, oh, I understand why my grandpa's on a ventilator now. Not necessarily to COVID, this is just what happens. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. I think this is, the opportunity to teach a lot more people about this kind of thing. And hopefully this will spread with some healthcare workers so it them feel more comfortable.
0: And when I, when I told you that I was, uh, uh, cause you only asked me a couple of days ago if I could, if, if I would consider, you know, kind of throwing these together. And, and uh, I, I threw something by you and I said, would it, what would you think if somebody kind of had an idea on something they could implement that actually would be positioning, but not necessarily related to ventilation. And then you threw out the idea of what, how did you say it? If you feel like that you're getting sick and you're not feeling well, get ahead of the curve. Lay down on your stomach. Why don't you kind of uh, talk?
1: Well, about- it was just one of those things. So, an ER doc did an observation and he, uh, he published something where he showed that he actually published it on Twitter of a patient on their, uh, in the prone position on their phone and mm-hmm. kind of said when she was on her back, she was struggling. So, when, he, when she rolled over, she could breathe easier. I think one of the problems is when we feel real sick and we're just laying in the same position the whole time, by rolling around and at least laying on your stomach a bit, then you could switch to your side, then back to your stomach. This is the same thing you're talking about. This could actually help recruit and in the early stages might be able to buy a little time. And maybe ER doctors watching this would understand, okay, if somebody comes in, put them on their belly, then we can do some of these other things like high flow nasal cannula or this this particular guy was looking at it, and he was trying to give a whole flowgram of what he's been doing, and preventing people from going on ventilators. So it's a it's a really cool concept. And by understanding the pathophysiology that you explained, now that makes sense. Why that could be a way to help people out.
0: It's interesting that you say it in that in in those terms too, and what it is that he's doing with the flowgram, because it reminds me back when I first started helping manage some uh, some arts patients. Um. We were told that it's just not common to have to, to get into this. It's not commonplace to have to always do ARDS patients. It's usually your larger hospitals that, that really kind of encounter those. Right. Yeah. So being reminded of that, I will say that the one takeaway I had from well over a decade ago is whenever somebody's in arts, they can't be prone fast enough. They, oh, they, wow. they cannot be prone fast enough. Nobody will say that's too early. No, actually, Getting ahead of the curve, recognizing that you're having a loss of gas exchange real estate. Build, get some for yourself. Lay down on your stomach, begin to breathe. It doesn't matter. If you look a little funny, so what? Save your life. Um, but if you begin to feel sick or have shortness of breath while you're waiting for someone to go and seek help for you, get yourself in that position. So, I mean, ER, home, waiting to get a ride, whatever it takes.
1: Because we'll, Yeah, I mean, so if this actually pans out, this may make a big difference, especially if what, what he discovered. So we have a lot more CPAP machines available and BiPAP machines, which are just the same thing that many people have obstructive sleep apnea. If what he's suggesting is that he's seeing people he'll put prone, put them on a BiPAP or a CPAP machine, right. increase the PEEP, Basically, that's what they're doing is increasing the peep, putting them on a prone position and saving them from going on a vent. There's a lot of people with CPAP machines next to their bed, including this guy right here talking. (laughs) I've got apnea and I wear a little nasal pillow. I know I'm not alone because Chang Ron did a social media post about how people, if you have sleep apnea, then you're going to be at risk for developing something also. So make sure you wear your CPAP machine if it's dusty in the closet.
0: Yeah, that article, uh, I, I found that uh, really interesting how, how well he described being able to do some of the intermediary steps, with CPAPs, the high high nasal cannula. I don't disagree with the thing that he's saying. The, and he even addresses it in there. Uh, if he could just simply answer the question of the danger of the aerosolization of the disease versus... Preventing someone from having to get to mechanical ventilation, but the one thing that he uses that several people still do is the rocks equation. We'll go through it, but essentially, you're taking some status measurements to see, okay, are we beyond any of these intermediary steps? Do we need to move to the ventilation? But I think I think that his piece is uh, it preserves equipment. It still requires people that don't feel well, that feel like that they're beginning to lose their breath, to go seek help now.
1: Yeah, that's. That's that's the key. People are like, well, when should I go in? And, you know, the ERs are trying to say, well, if you've got a mild fever and see if you can ride it out, if you can do this. But the second any shortness of breath starts happening, I think you got to get in and get some of this equipment on you to prevent you from going into ARDS. It's almost like you have an obligation to get there before because it's becoming a slippery slope then.
0: Hey, uh, you know, Mike wrote that uh, question over to you and I, he was asking uh, specifically about the healthcare worker uh and younger people uh, mm-hmm. you and i kind of have similar takes on what we think and maybe maybe slightly different did you have an, an idea on what you thought could possibly is total theory but just could possibly be lending itself to uh younger well, people or y- healthcare workers
1: yeah i mean my my view on the healthcare worker is just repeated exposure and repeated yeah. exposure and repeated exposure you took a little different take on it on the workload so tell Go ahead and tell me your take on that one.
0: I I mean, I, I, number one, I completely agree with the repeated exposure. I think that somebody who's healthy and they're a healthcare worker, they probably can fend off a couple of small assaults, right? But if it's Mm -hmm. continuing to attack other healthy pneumocytes, it's kind of like what we laid out today, then you're going to initiate a cytokine storm. Unfortunately for somebody else who had they just small, you know, had a small encounter, probably wouldn't even notice that they had been contaminated. But yes, the workload ultimately, that's that's the sign of failure for really any organ system is a workload and there's just not enough supply whatever that supply happens to be for any one of our organs so when the lungs just simply cannot produce and share enough oxygen for the rest of the body but the rest of the body is churning and its programmed response is to basically kind of amp up it's uh it's a tough scenario to work out on one's own without some uh, medical intervention,
1: for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's so. That's a really good point that maybe the healthcare workers themselves, number one, repeated exposure, but number two, they're oh, still yeah, they're still running around, still you know busting their butt, and yeah. you know maybe subtle changes in that tidal volume, like you're talking about, is really what what starts the downhill slippery slope. So, Definitely. but yeah, and so you know the whole point is to educate on this and. Hopefully, if a healthcare worker gets something out of it, that's why we're doing this one. Normally, I think you and I try to be a little bit more lighthearted and jokey, but I asked you as a favor to me to refresh my memory. So thank you very much for doing that. I'm dusting the cobwebs off, but I think that's a-
0: If you have any specific questions and if I can answer them, uh, shoot, I I don't mind answering questions about vents or any of that kind of stuff. So. Any questions about any of the episodes, you know, you can always email us at uh, uh, kbmdhealth.com, go to contact us and let us know, or uh, gutcheckproject.com, same thing. Uh, well, Brian, what do we do now?
1: You know what, I mean, I think that's the thing, once we get on Instagram, I have a, I would like, if anybody is a healthcare worker, a respiratory tech, or an ICU doc, or an ICU nurse, and we got something wrong, let us know, because Oh yeah. Uh, it's a, this, is, this is not, you know, my specialty is a gastroenterologist, so this is a learning curve for me on this one. But, yeah, I think we did. Uh, we're right at, about, uh, right at about 55 minutes or so. So we try to keep this around an hour, we, you know, and uh, see what we can do. And you covered a lot of material in an hour, so that's awesome. That is absolutely awesome.
0: Hey, man, my, uh, my dry erase board is worn out
1: so <laughs> yeah oh yeah because you would have to erase oh you only had one <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> man it was uh it was it was draw uh take a picture and then it right away so oh. <laughs> yeah and unfortunately i didn't have i didn't have a uh, gauge or mac available to help me uh, kind of sketch those out because those are really really rough picassos i just
1: threw together yeah and you know what it looked like your drawing skills were just starting to improve if you would have done a little bit <laughs> more, they would have started looking like real lungs
0: if you if only you knew how long it took for me just to print the words I
1: used, so. <laughs> well that's awesome all right well i'm going to call this our covid19 file number three in the books
0: yeah we go.
1: Um, share it with somebody if you think that they could benefit from this information so great job eric all right
0: we'll see y'all next time thank you
1: take care